This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, it was 1973, and I was 18 years old, and I was in my first day of college. And I had been a Christian for a year and a half, and for some reason, I took a philosophy course, (laughs) and it was called The Problem of God. Now, the first problem was that the classroom did not yet exist. They were still building the building. And so a number of us were sitting out on the lawn waiting to find out if our, a place to meet was going to appear. And suddenly we noticed uh, a guy in jeans and a jean jacket with a, with a backpack on, scruffy beard, wandering among the students and saying, anybody looking for God? Anybody looking for God? His name was Wayne Paquette and he was our professor found out later that Wayne Paquette had been a Roman Catholic monk, but had left that vocation because he lost his faith, and so he became a philosophy professor. As you could tell, I was probably in a very precarious situation, although I didn't really realize it at the time. We studied a lot of different philosophical and religious ideas about God in that course, We learned that some cultures see signs of divinity everywhere and attribute those signs to different gods doing different things. So ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian religion, ancient popular Greek and Roman religions, Northern European religions, Hinduism, all of those systems we learned were polytheistic. We also learned that some systems are henotheistic. They believe that there are many gods, but one is a high god who is greater than the others. We learned that some people believed in pantheism, that the world, the cosmos itself was God. Or panentheism, that the the divine pervades and interpenetrates the universe. And of course, we learned that there are some who believed in monotheism, that there was one god who ruled the world. Our final project for this course was to write a 50-page paper on our view of God. There was a catch, however. We were not allowed to use any secondary sources. We could not quote the Bible or the Quran or any other authority. It all had to come out of our heads. And so what was produced was basically a lot of straw. I, I never kept the paper. I did learn some things, though. I learned that without the help of the Bible and the Christian tradition, I could not come up with any idea about the Trinity or about Jesus as the Savior. I could come up with a few ideas. I wrote quite a bit about how since there was beauty and order and goodness in the world, 
it would make sense if the world had a divine origin. I wrote that the corruption of the world seemed to imply that human beings needed help and that help needed to come from outside. I could even say that it made sense that if God cared about his creatures, uh, he would want to communicate with them. He would want to reveal himself. But without the Bible, I couldn't say anything about that self-revelation of God or about the saving work of God in Jesus. And I certainly couldn't say anything about the Trinitarian nature of God. The project taught me two things. First, without God, I cannot know God. I can imagine all kinds of possible things, but I can't know God. In either of the English senses of that word, no. I could not know about God. I had no reliable access to knowledge about who he was. And without God's self-revelation, I could not have a relationship with that God. The second thing I learned is that when a person says they believe in God, they really haven't told you very much yet. The word God does not have a universally agreed upon definition. Many people have claimed to believe in God, but what does that really mean? The ancient Babylonians said they believed in God, and the God that they usually meant was Marduk. Marduk was the creator God, the high God of the Babylonians. But Marduk himself makes it clear why he created people. He created them so that the gods would have slaves to serve them. The Greeks believed in gods, but they were capricious. They had sex with people, they fought with each other, they were unpredictable. The world was messed up because the gods themselves were dysfunctional. The Romans believed in many gods, and they each had practical functions. So when the Roman army was going out to war, the legions would march to the Temple of Mars in the center of Rome, and they would sacrifice a pig to Mars and pray for success. You become what you worship. The same, I must say, is true of Christians. When a Christian says that he or she believes in God... What does that person actually mean? Where are they getting their idea, their definition of God? Now the problem, as Wayne Paquette made clear to us in that course, the problem was not God himself or itself or herself. The problem is that our own ideas and thoughts and feelings about God are a dead end. We cannot think our way to God. Human beings have a multitude of answers to the question of the nature of God. Therefore, it is important, first of all, that we get the starting point right. Ourselves, our own ideas and thoughts and feelings about God won't get us where we need to go. Only God's self-revelation, God's unveiling of himself, can get us where we need to go. We can't think our way to God. God must reveal himself to us. And so we have the scriptures. In John 14, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. 
John 14, verse 8 says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, in these words, Jesus makes a stunning claim. The claim is that in the life and ministry of Jesus, in his teaching, in his healing, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit, in Jesus we have the self-revelation of God himself. The first chapter of John's Gospel says this, No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. No one has seen God. No one can know God on their own. But God has not left us in that state of unknowing. The Son, the one closest to the heart of the Father, the one who became carnate and fleshed in Jesus of Nazareth, has come into the world to reveal God to us, to make God known. And so on this Trinity Sunday, the first thing we need to say is this. That without God, it is impossible to know God. But in Jesus, God has made himself known to us. It is hard to emphasize this point too much. Let me tell you a story from my own diocese. As most of you know, I was and remain a bishop of the Diocese of Egypt. Now, this Anglican diocese is geographically big. Uh, but all, also pretty small in Christian population, about 25,000 Christians spread over eight countries. But we do have a little bit of history. So let me tell you a story from our diocese. At least we claim it's from our diocese. At the beginning of the fourth century, in Alexandria, a city on the Mediterranean coast in northern Egypt, there was a theologian named Arius. Arius believed that God was the cause of everything and was himself uncaused or unoriginate. He took this to be the basic definition of what the word God meant. But since Jesus was the Son, he surmised, there must have been a time when Christ was not. Many believed him, including for a time the majority of bishops in the world, there's another sermon there, but that will have to wait for another time. But there was one guy who certainly did not believe what Arius was saying. He was not at all persuaded. His name was Athanasius. Athanasius' reasoning was basically this. We cannot know what God is like except as God has revealed himself. Here's a quote from Athanasius in his work against the Arians. It is, more, it is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. In other words, according to Athanasius, the right way to think about God is to start with Jesus, God's self-revelation, rather than with some abstract concept. There is an important practical issue here, of course. If Jesus is the Son and God the Father, then God reveals himself using language of a family. We can pray our Father, 
But who can pray to unoriginate? Can unoriginate hear us? Does unoriginate care? So in thinking about God, we must first begin at the beginning. As the sound of music tells us, it is a very good place to start. But the second thing we need to say is about before the beginning. If the first thing we need to say is about, has to do with the starting point of our thinking about God's revelation, the second thing we need to say is actually about before the beginning. Once again, the Gospel of John can help us out. In John 17, Jesus is praying for himself and for his disciples and for those who are going to believe through the witness of those first disciples. In verse 5, Jesus says this, So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. This should make our heads explode. Here we have a glimpse of the inner life of the Trinity. Jesus prays that the glory of the life of God before the creation would be made known. Well, that's kind of mind-expanding enough. But we need to see the context. Jesus is praying the night before he goes to the cross. He is about to be arrested. And he prays that he will be glorified. Where does that glorification take place? It takes place on the cross. The glory of the inner life of the Trinity is revealed on a tree of wood as Jesus suffers and dies for the world. The glory of God is seen not in some speculative, imaginative notion of what God is like, but in the shameful execution of one sentenced to death by crucifixion. The glory of God is made known not by an exercise of coercive power and might, but in pain and sorrow. But there's more. At the end of his prayer, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In John 17, 24, Jesus gives us yet another glimpse of the life of the Trinity before the creation. He has already said that this Trinitarian life is a life of glory, but now Jesus tells us what that glory looks like. It is a relationship of love. The eternal life of God is characterized by love. This is why Christians believe in the Trinity, because before time and forever, God existed in a relationship of mutual, self-giving love. This is why the cross is important, not only as God's act of saving love. The cross is important also because in the cross, we see the heart of God, the Trinity. In the cross, John's Gospel tells us, God's glory is revealed, and that glory is self-giving love. 
once again, we need to see that the doctrine of the Trinity is eminently practical. It is not a vague, incomprehensible idea. It is not an impossible mathematical formula. One plus one plus one equals one. It is not what theologians argue about in order to stay busy or, or employed. The Trinity declares, as the Old Testament did, that God is one. Because God is one, God has a claim on the whole world. He made it. It is his. And so because God is one, Paul can say in the third chapter of Romans, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Because there is one God, all belong to him. And so, once again, we need to hear what St. Paul tells us. That is that because there is one God who has a claim on the whole world, one day that whole world will need to submit to that one God. Philippians 2, 10 to 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here, Christianity has something in common with Islam. The word Islam means submission. Muslims believe that there is one God and that therefore all must submit to God. Christians also believe that there is one God and that one day all will submit to him. But there's a difference. Islam and Trinitarian Christianity differ in how they understand the nature of the unity of this God. Because Christians believe that at the heart of this one God, we find a cross. At the center of the life of God, we find a God who has loved before the world was made. At the innermost point of the life of God, is a community, a family, a trinity of persons in unity of being. The doctrine of the Trinity is practical because if we worship this one God in trinity of persons, we are ourselves formed into a community of love. You become what you worship. This community is described in Revelation chapter 7. Jonathan made reference to this last week. It is a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and nation and culture and language, a diverse family unified around the throne of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One last point needs to be made. Last week, Jonathan quoted an African saying, I am because we are. It's a wonderful saying. It goes back to a Kenyan Anglican theologian named John Mbiti. Mbiti coined this phrase in rather explicit opposition to the Western point of view. Rene Descartes, the French philosopher, had famously attempted to doubt all things in the hope of finding a bedrock on which he could formulate his philosophy. Descartes found that there was only one thing that he could not doubt, and that was the fact that he was doubting. 
And so he said, I doubt, therefore I am, or I think, therefore I am. The result was an individualistic worldview in which the isolated human knower becomes the center of the universe. And Beatty says, no, we Africans can't buy that. The African worldview is communitarian. I am because we are. Or as another African Anglican, John Pobe, put it, I am because I have blood relations. This African view is a wonderful correction to our Western individualism. But there's a catch. There's a problem in this African view. Pobe's way of stating it underlies the problem. I am because I have blood relations. If my primary identity is my family, then nepotism and inter-ethnic violence are almost inevitable. Because of this, Africa and many other places that have reduced the community to my family or my community have been in deep trouble. And so Africa and the rest of the world, as well as the Western world, need a robust view of God as Trinity. You see, we are quite capable of human beings of making an idol out of anything, whether that idol is the individual or the community. Wendy and I were at a returning missionary conference a few months ago. There was a family there who had lived in Somalia for a number of years, and they were now back in the U.S. for a time, and one of the things that they did was they went to the dollar store. They went to the Dollar Tree, and their kids were amazed. There's nothing like that in Somalia. So they went to the Dollar Tree, and they had a great time. They bought a bunch of stuff, and a few days later, their little girl said, Mom, can we go back to the idolatry? It's possible to make an idol out of anything. But Trinitarian theology rightly says that human identity must be seen as communitarian. We are created in God's image, and God is a trinity of persons in unity. So we need a communitarian view of life to be fully human. But not just any community will do. A lot of people love the community at Ascension, but it's not the community that will save you. Because God the Father has revealed himself in the Son through the Spirit as the God who created and loves the whole world, who died for the world and, he wa and who wants to fill the whole earth with his glory, a communitarian view of the world will not shrink the world to my tribe, my nation, my skin color, my language group, my denomination. Not if it's a Trinitarian view. There is a church in a refugee camp in Ethiopia, in a place called Dima. I went there shortly after the camp opened to meet with Christians and to start a church there. And when the Christians gathered and we had discussions together, they told me, we don't want to have separate ethnic churches in this camp. Many of the camps do. We want to worship together across ethnic groups. 
Now, there were four ethnic groups in this camp, the Jiang or the Dinka, the Nuer, the Anuak, and the Murle. They were fighting each other in South Sudan, but they wanted to worship together in this camp. So I called them Holy Family Church. It's one of the great things about being the bishop, you got to name the church. I call them Holy Family Church, not only because Jesus and his family were refugees, but because they had realized that if they were in Christ, they are members of the same family. And that the war in South Sudan, which had degenerated into an ethnic war, was fundamentally anti-Christian. Because it denied that as baptized people, we belong together. As the Kenyan liturgy says, We are brothers and sisters through his blood. The blood of Jesus and the water of baptism trump ethnic blood relations. The Trinitarian life of God revealed in Jesus forms a new community, a community which must be characterized by self-giving love. If we become like the God we worship, we will become a family of self-giving love. Let me just tell you about one other class I took. A couple of years after I took that first philosophy class, I took my first theology class. It was a, a course in historical theology, and it was taught by a dear man named Eric Jay, who had once been the chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, I think it was. Dr. J had a wonderful British accent, which included a whistle whenever he said the letter S. So we learned about St. Augustine. Uh, Much of the first semester of that class dealt with the first five centuries of the church. And much of the first five centuries of the church, I soon learned, were taken up with Christological and Trinitarian controversies. After many weeks of discussing various views of the Trinity, We were meeting in a small group with Dr. J one day, and one of the other students in the class said, Dr. J, after today, are we finished with the Trinity? (laughs) And Dr. J's eyes began to twinkle. And he said, the question is whether the Trinity is finished with you. We have touched only on the tip of the iceberg of the reality of the Trinitarian life today. But if that God lives in us, surely the neighbors should notice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.